For the week of Thursday, August 2nd, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, in advance of the August 7th primary, we check in one last time with the three Democratic candidates running for Congress in the 8th Congressional District, Kim Schreier, Shannon Hader, and Jason Ritterizer, for some closing comments. Then Monday's protest in Spokane against Devin Nunes' appearance at a fundraiser for Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers came together in part because of a collaboration between leaders from Indivisible Spokane and Central Valley Indivisible in Nunes' home district. And we talked with the two leaders about the creative ways they worked together to make Nunes feel distinctly unwelcome here in Washington. That's all coming up, so stay with us. So as most of you know, the primary is almost upon us. And uh, I know I don't need to remind anybody listening that the deadline to send in your ballots is August 7th. Uh, So since this is the final show before the primary, for those of you in Washington's 8th District who are still on the fence about whom to support for Congress, I thought it'd be useful to check in just one last time with each of the three Democratic candidates who are running. Now, I have had the distinct honor to interview each of them here on the show early in their campaigns. Uh, I have also hosted forums with them. I've seen how incredibly hard they've all worked, and I have, I've had, honestly had the privilege of watching them evolve into extraordinary candidates. So I've invited each of them back this week to talk about their process and their experiences over the last year and to just give them the floor for some closing remarks. Uh, many of you have already seen them in person or online in forums and even debates. Uh, so I thought what I would do is ask a few questions that are a little off the beaten path from maybe what you've heard before. So as you likely know, the three candidates are Kim Schreier, Shannon Hader, and Jason Ritterizer. Kim is an Issaquah-based pediatrician and is one of two candidates endorsed by a collective of indivisible groups in Washington's 8th District. Shannon is a native of Auburn who has a medical degree from Columbia, and she was the director of the Center for Disease Control's Division of Global HIV and Tuberculosis. And Jason is an Ellensburg native who has served as a criminal prosecutor for King County in the Special Assault Unit and the Violent Crime Unit. He's also one of two candidates endorsed by the collective of indivisible groups in the 8th District. So I asked each of the candidates five questions, ones that I thought would be interesting and informative, and like I say, a little different from the questions that they've been asked a ton of times at forums and debates. The first one had to do with their experience in campaigning over the last year. Specifically, was there something that they anticipated would be easy that turned out to be hard? And then conversely, was there something that they thought would be hard that turned out to be easy? First, Kim Schreier. Well, uh, this whole experience has been a huge learning curve. I mean, I was transitioning from a pediatrician to being in politics. And so this really was a whole retraining and learning experience. And so maybe I should answer the second part first, which is, frankly, I never thought anything would be easy. I knew this was going to be a really tough challenge. I knew it was going to be a challenge. You know, when I jumped in, it was to take on Dave Reichert. I knew it was going to be a challenge to take on an incumbent, but I also knew that we were at a time in our country's history when we all needed to do something if we wanted this to stay the country that we know and we love. And so I knew it would be tough, uh, but I took it on. And uh, true to what I expected, I don't think anything has surprised me where I thought it would be easy and then it became hard. I never expected anything to be easy. Well, so then on the flip side, was there something that turned out to be easy that you thought was going to be a lot harder? Oh, yeah. Well, um, we all know that fundraising is part of politics, an unfortunate part of politics. Um, 
So I thought raising money for this campaign was going to be really tough. And I have never had to ask anybody for anything. Um, so just the notion of, you know, saying I, I could really use your support um, was really uh, foreign to me. Uh, so what I found, though, is that there are a lot of like-minded people. There's a lot of people who are really interested in flipping the seat. There's a lot of people who are really excited in anything they can do. And so along the way, as I met people at town halls, at meetings, at doors, uh, they would say, well, how can I help? And, you know, in addition to voting, I did say it's really important to raise funds because it's a huge district. And people were more than happy to get involved and to share their hard-earned dollars because, really, I do believe the entire district, state, country understands that right now we really do all have to roll up our sleeves and get involved. I put the same question to Shannon Hader. I think the thing that has been the absolute most surprising to me is actually how personal this all is. Um, that sounds odd, but, you know, and I, I expected – the fact that I would have to sort of open up and share a lot about myself, you know, and that's what you sign on for when you're asking people to trust you, you know, trust you with their vote, but trust you with their governing. Um, but what I didn't realize is the kind of like really personal connections I have formed with all these people I never known before. I have this whole set of brand new friends who are people I had never met who came up to me because of the campaign, have gotten involved, and from all different sort of interest groups and walks of life, that I can tell you are going to be lifelong friends now. And that has been a surprise and a privilege that I wouldn't have expected, because I think there's not that many points in grown-up adult life where you can form that number of really deep friendships together. Um, so yeah. yeah, that has been really surprising and wonderfully easy, believe it or not, but great. <laughs> so that's the thing you thought was going to be hard that, that turned out to be easy. So was there an aspect of all of this that you thought might have been easy that actually turned out to be really hard? You know, not so much. Um, I think I am used to being in the hot seat and big, uh, high risk, high reward situations. Um, I think we're not even all the way there yet. So you know, I think the pace, the adrenaline, the um, seriousness of the issues, the stakes are all aspects that I was expecting. And I was pretty, um, pretty gratifying to know that my sort of experience and background having been in that place and other subjects translates perfectly to what's required here. And then I asked Jason Ritterizer, was there an aspect of the campaign that he thought might be easy that turned out to be hard? And then was there something that he feared would be hard that turned out to be easy? You know, we've been at this for, for over a year now. And I, I entered the race uh, with an expectation that it ought to be tough. Uh, we, we send 435 people uh, to the House of Representatives on behalf of the American people every two years uh, to make life and death decisions on behalf of uh, America. And it ought to be tough to get there. Uh, and so I approached the, this campaign uh, from a perspective that it was going to be a, a grueling approach to um, to get to a general election and ultimately to prevail uh, on election day. And I think there are some things that that I anticipated would be particularly difficult. It's it's always difficult to raise money. It's uh, it's always difficult to keep up with the demands of of a campaign schedule. Uh, but one thing that has not been 
difficult. Uh, is exciting people about this race and getting people involved. Uh, and I think we've seen, especially through Indivisible, a rise of activism that uh, I certainly haven't experienced in my life. And, and one thing that's been quite easy is to rally people around the idea that it's time for change and that it's time to send a new generation of leaders to Congress. Next, I asked them if over the last year or so of campaigning, there's an area on policy where they had shifted or evolved. Kim Schreier. I think evolution is really the better word. Uh, You know, our state is incredibly trade dependent, and we have been talking a lot about trade recently in terms of the tariffs and how dangerous a tariff war and retaliatory tariffs are, especially for Boeing and for the orchardists and farmers in our district. And um, so I've really evolved a deeper understanding of the importance of trade deals, the importance of how we can use a trade deal, not just on an economic level, but on a level where we can use a trade deal as a tool to bring all ships up, right? Like a rising tide raises all ships. So to, to make environmental standards better across the globe, to protect workers across the globe, to make sure workers have the right to collectively bargain across the globe. And I am um, I'm, I'm very happy to have learned so much and to really gain that understanding of the way that we can use trade deals for the betterment of our country, but the betterment of the globe in general and about how important it is that the United States is in these deals because we can raise this and make it so that we don't go to the lowest common denominator, that we really have good, effective trade deals. Shannon Hader. I think, you know, one of the areas where I've evolved a lot has to do with understanding and sort of getting into the details of what it's going to take to really uh, make change for our labor unions. Um, Certainly, I have three generations of labor union members in my family, so I'm, you know, hit the ground running with a value of labor unions and an understanding of the the major attacks on a collective bargaining and on our good-paying, good-wage union jobs there are right now. But what to do about it, I think I didn't have a full understanding of until until I started doing a little bit more homework, you know, because one of the questions I got from some labor representatives were, you know, why should we trust you just because you're a Democrat? The Democrats haven't been doing much for us lately. And I thought, huh, but yeah, that's a great question. Um, And as I did my homework, I found out that we do not have a single Washington state delegate on the Education and the Workforce Committee in Congress. And in fact, when I dug deeper, we only have one West Coast delegate, that's a woman from Oregon, on that committee's subcommittee for health, education, labor, and pensions. So what that means to me is if states like Washington, where we have some of the strongest workforce in the country, if not the world, where we have been part of cutting-edge production and design, if we are not at the table, at both of those tables, helping to shape the conversations there, much less the legislation and the policies, then no wonder our unions don't feel supported. So that actually changed my entire uh, sort of rank, letter, rank order wish list of what committees I would most want to you know, lobby to be on. And now the number one committee for me is the Education and the Workforce Committee, because I think there's a gap there, a gap that is critical to us in the eighth and us in Washington, and a gap that I'm committed to filling. And Jason Ritterizer on the question of evolving as a candidate. Yeah, you know, I think evolved is the right word, right? I mean, I, I uh, 
there's no question that all of the Democratic candidates are uh, in this race for the right reasons. Uh, and and I've been able to see uh, how I think we've evolved throughout the course of the last the last year. And I think it's been a good evolution because I think we've seen um, uh, certainly an increase in understanding of the issues take place throughout this race. Um, one area that I have focused intently uh, is on healthcare policy. And uh, I have long believed in universal healthcare. I believe healthcare is a human right. Um, but one area that I have uh, pushed on is how we get there. I think we can all agree uh, from the Democratic Party perspective that uh, we ought to be providing healthcare to every man, woman, and child in this country, regardless of their uh, ability to pay, uh, regardless of their socioeconomic status, where they live. Uh, but part of the debate that's developed in this race is around how we get there. How do we achieve access? How do we eat lower costs? Uh, and that's one area that I've uh, become pretty laser focused in, and that's uh, in supporting the universal health care, the Medicare for all bill, H.R. 676. I, I think that to address access and to address costs in this country, uh, we have to pursue a Medicare for all system. Uh, and I don't buy this notion that we can't do it immediately. Uh, I think that's it's become a, a defining issue in this race. Uh, in 1965, when President Johnson signed uh, Medicare into law, it was against strong opposition from Republicans. It was against opposition even within the Democratic Party. And they signed a bill and they got it done in one year. And that was without the internet. That was done on three by five cards and they covered every senior in America. And I, I don't buy the notion that we can't have that same timeline or even quicker with the passage of H.R. 676. Is it a big overhaul? Sure, it is. Uh, but I think to deliver health care to every man, woman, and child in this country, we're going to have to take some bold stances. Each of these candidates have talked to thousands of people over the course of their campaigns. And so I asked them, was there a particularly interesting or useful piece of feedback that they have gotten from a constituent? Kim Schreier. Uh, you know, uh, mostly what I hear is, you know, to paraphrase, just you be you, that um, people don't want to see me change. They like who I am as a pediatrician. There's a craving for authenticity. I think people are tired of politics and politicians and the discourse in Washington, D.C., and they just want to see somebody who will stand up and say, look, this is how I feel, and I share these concerns with all of you, and I'm going to take your voices to Congress, and they're just saying, don't lose that authenticity. We like it. Shannon Hader on feedback that she's gotten from constituents that stuck with her. There's a lot, um, but I think the thing that was most remarkable is, you know that when I jumped into the race that I actually launched my campaign about six months later than the other main candidates had launched theirs. And that was because of the Hatch Act. You had you were a government mm -hmm. employee, and then you had to wait until you had resigned your post to, to declare your intention to run for office. Yes, that's right. And I needed to fill my commitment. Personally, I felt like I needed to fulfill my commitment to CDC and close that out before I could separate from the Fed. So exactly. So but I knew that coming in, I would have a different pathway and a different sort of uh, milestone look than a lot of the other candidates. And when I was first starting to reach out to different individuals and different communities and asking, can I come and talk to you? In my mind and my team's mind, we're like, okay, so they'll have already met all the other candidates. How do we make them care and pay attention? And I think particularly when I was reaching out to folks in South King County and East Pierce, but this happened over the mountains in Wenatchee too, I would reach out expecting that. And what I heard back from a number of constituents was, wow, thanks for reaching out. We have not had a 
Democratic candidate for federal office make the effort to reach out and meet us in 30 years. Wow. Yeah. And that became a pattern, not always that eloquently stated, but it really made me realize that there are a lot of folks here in South King County, East Pierce, over the mountains in Kittitas and Chelan and Douglas, who have not felt very engaged or valued by the Democratic Party over the last couple of decades. And to me, that is just a missed opportunity. Uh, and I'm really glad that I have been able to focus on that kind of community outreach and engagement. Uh, and I just hope that I get a chance to be the congresswoman who can do that for constituents as well. And Jason Ritterizer on if there's a particularly useful piece of feedback that he's gotten from a constituent. There have been a lot of them. I, in fact, uh, I've made a point to remember them. And so uh, if I have uh, an interaction or hear a story or something that is that is uh, influential uh, to me, I, I tend to try to write it down. And uh, I'll share I'll, – actually, I'll share one that I haven't shared on the campaign trail at all. Please. Um, I, uh, I met a, a guy who's about 40 years old. His name's Efren. And Efren is a, a member of a union. He's an operating engineer, and he uh, is one of the trainers out at the operating engineers' joint training site just past Ellensburg. And uh, I was out there touring the facility a couple of months ago. And Efren has an incredible story. He's, uh, he's an immigrant uh, from Mexico. He was actually born in the United States and went back to Mexico when he was a baby and uh, came up literally in the streets of Mexico City. He was, he was selling uh, oranges in the streets and was the victim of gang violence. He was actually shot with uh, an AR-15 in the arm. Mm. And his parents knew that they needed to get him out of of Mexico. And so uh, because he uh, is uh, an American citizen, he was born here, he could come back over the, uh, the border and moved here when he was a, still a pretty young adolescent and has found his way through uh, really every single obstacle he's faced. And uh, he became a member of a union that helped him get educated, helped him uh, really progress through uh, his career, and now he is a trainer uh, at the site outside Kittitas County. And so, it, it was a it was a perspective that he brought to me around the importance of labor unions, the importance of immigration policy that okay. uh, reflects our values, and the perspective he brought on gang violence and, and gun crime. And uh, to me, talking to constituents has not just helped uh, shape my perspective on issues but has informed me, I think, in and really uh, provided me uh, ammunition to go to Washington, D.C. and advocate on behalf of people by telling stories and by saying this is how this law affects people in their everyday life, and this is how we're ultimately uh, going to make change. And then because I think most of us feel a particular sense of urgency around what we hope will be a democratically controlled Congress in November, I asked each candidate what their plan would be on day one when they take office. Kim Schreier. Um, I think day one in office is going to start even before day one in office because I really want to hit the ground running. So I think the day after the November election, I will start building coalitions, finding who I can work with. And then on day one in office, really get to work addressing our health care system, 
and making healthcare affordable and accessible for everybody in this country because I, I have moms crying in my clinic because they can't afford their premiums and I just cannot stand by while, uh, while that continues to happen in our country. So going to bat for families all over this country and all over this district for affordable and accessible health care, um, that would be day one. Shannon Hader on her plans for day one. My focus is going to be on delivering for the people they ate and making sure I explore the places where we need some unique focus, flexibility, and support to get things done. So for me, what that looks like is very aggressively starting day one is exploring all of the different coalitions I will need to build over time. So, you know, reaching out to the the members right now that are leaders on a couple of the key issues that we need to be tackling immediately, like lowering drug prices, um, like investing in infrastructure, so that I can start to be part of that coalition and team. Um, Reaching out to colleagues to let them know what areas I will be uniquely poised to lead on. Uh, whether it's a public health approach to gun violence prevention or a public health approach to opioids. I will also be reaching out to the freshman class that I will have assessed, because I think this is going to be one of the biggest freshman class in a long time, to try to see what unique experience we might be able to link together to put on the horizon for influencing the incumbents and really getting some action and results. And I'm going to look at some... uh, specific issues where bipartisanship is absolutely needed and has not been going very well. And I think for me, this includes looking at which specific Republicans and Democrats have a vested interest like I do in the uh, temporary work visas for agriculture, you know, the H-2A visas and our ability to sort of maintain and modernize those because our farms are in a crisis of labor right now. And then finally, and to me, this is most important, I am going to be on day one sending out the message loud and clear to all of the constituents, all of the members of our 8th Congressional District that, you know what, my office is open for visits and my office for constituency services is open for business. I am ready to serve. I am ready to listen to people's issues and problems. And I need to know uh, in real time and over time what the biggest problems are and how those are playing out so that I can incorporate those into my day-to-day priority agenda. So that's what day one looks like for me. Jason Ritterizer on his plans for day one. I think the 116th Congress is going to be defined uh, by two tracks. I think I think one track is going to be uh, an oversight uh, effort by the United States Congress in order to hold the Trump administration accountable. And I think the The second track is uh, that as a Democratic Party, we have to be able to govern, not just uh, not just uh, because it's the right thing to do, but because we have to be able to demonstrate to the American people that the Democratic Party can get things done with a divided Congress. It's unlikely we take back the Senate and uh, with an opposition party in the executive. And so uh, I'm going to do two things on day one. Uh, The first thing I'm going to do is uh, probably find the find the committee in which I am assigned, uh, and get my bearings in how we can place a check on the Trump administration to combat a lot of the things we're seeing going on uh, in the country right now. And number two, how can we push towards what I think should be the first piece of legislation, H.R. 1 in the United States Congress, uh, is an infrastructure bill. How can we push an infrastructure plan? How can we fund an infrastructure plan? How can we make sure it deals with roads and bridges and our ports, make sure it includes uh, updating our energy grid to capture the renewable energy we're producing, and also 
how do we make sure it includes uh, access to broadband technology for people in Washington state? And finally, for their closing remarks, I thought that instead of just doing the standard remarks that they've done at countless forums, I would ask the candidate something a little different. I asked them to fast forward to 2020 to their re-election campaign. And what would they hope to tell the constituents of the 8th District that they accomplished in their two years in office? Here's what I'd like to say. Uh, I went to Congress and I went to bat for you, and I got you affordable and accessible health care. I stabilized our health care system, and I made it so that nobody has to make a decision about whether they can afford to take their child to the doctor or whether they can pay their insurance premiums versus their mortgage. And so I would love to come back and say, I went to bat for you, and this is what we got. Um, I would love to say, you know what? It didn't take any corporate PAC money, and I stood up to Big Pharma, and I brought prices down because it is absurd that we uh, we should pay far more for our medications in this country than they pay in Canada. And so saying, look, I brought back that ability for Medicare to negotiate drug costs, and I took on Big Pharma. And um, third, I'm a pediatrician uh, and a mom, and you know, one of the things I've said all along is that we could sure use somebody who thinks more about the next 10 years or the next generation um, or generations than just about the next re-election campaign. So saying that I went to bat for kids and for what's better for the next generation, whether that's environment or education, but just really doubling down on that investment and make sure that we leave this world better for the next generation. Shannon Hader. I think this is going to be a fairly dramatic two years um, because we have a combination of wanting to and needing desperately to put a check on the executive branch and hold President Trump accountable, but also to move forward on some of those practical issues that serve us all red to blue that need to change in our day-to-day lives and can't wait for two years to go forward. Um, You know, there's a bunch of issues like that I could talk about and we will. But I think what I would like to be in the place to say in two years is to the people of the eight, you know what? I promised action results, and you have sh- I've shown you all along where I've made progress, where it's delivered, and how it's changed our lives here in the eight. Second, I've promised transparency and accountability. I want to make sure that people two years from now feel like they know what I've been doing and where I'm at at policies. So that even if we don't agree on policies or what my actions have been, people know where I stand and what those differences are. Um, Third, I want to be sure that people have the impression that I am uh, responsive and accessible. You know, part of the reason I've been getting a lot of these endorsements across the district, um, whether it is from labor unions in Wenatchee, whether it's from uh, Latino uh, community leaders in business or in grassroots education, uh, whether it is our local democratic organizations, you know, our legislative district and county district Dem groups, all of which have endorsed me in this race, a lot of what they cite is that accountability or that accessibility. And so two years from now, I hope people have seen me govern the way I'm campaigning where I am, they feel I'm accessible and responsive and still that, you know, good old Shannon, Dr. Shannon, who is showing up, doing the work and 
wanting to both hear what people have to say, but also to act on that. And Jason Ritterizer on what he hopes to tell people during his re-election campaign in 2020. You know, first, I, I would hope to be able to tell them that, uh, that I worked hard every single day on behalf of uh, constituents in the 8th District uh, to fight for the values that I think we all hold dear, and that I stayed true to my values, uh, and that I stayed true to the promises and the convictions that we've made and, and held throughout this campaign. Uh, and in terms of accomplishments, I... I hope to be able to to tell uh, the 8th Congressional District and, and everybody in Washington State that uh, I did everything I could to uphold the rule of law, to put a check on the Trump administration, to hold them accountable for what's going on in our country right now, while finding a space to work across the aisle, get legislation passed in the United States Congress, and to help people in the 8th Congressional District. And, and that is the foundation upon which I would operate, not just in the United States Congress, but how I'd hope to run for re-election in 2020. And so there you have it. Final words from the three candidates running for Congress in the 8th District, Kim Schreier, Shannon Hader, and Jason Ritterizer. And I will just say in closing that it has been a real honor to get to know each of them over this last year of their campaigns. It has been an extraordinary journey, and I want to wish each of them the best of luck on Tuesday, August 7th. So on Monday, California Congressman and chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, was invited by Republican Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers to speak at her $500 a plate fundraiser in Spokane. Indivisible members turned out in force to protest Nunes and managed to get coverage from three local TV stations, two papers, including the Spokesman Review, as well as the local public radio station. And this event came together in part due to a collaboration between members of of Indivisible Spokane and Central Valley Indivisible, which is in Devin Nunes' district in California's 22nd. It's actually a really inspirational story. So I've invited on two of the Indivisible leaders who were instrumental in making all of this happen. First, Indivisible Spokane, Cynthia Hamilton, who has been a frequent guest on the show. Hello, Cynthia. Hi, how are you? I'm just I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. And also Natasha Mosiev, who is the founder of Central Valley Indivisible and is also a pal of mine. Hello, Natasha. Hello. So, uh, Natasha, you know, I know that members in your di- indivisible members in your district have consistently dogged Devin Nunes whenever he rears his head there, but that's almost never. So, you started to reach out to other indivisible groups whenever Nunes goes to different districts for, say, fundraisers. And most recently, you coordinated with indivisible members in New York's 22nd uh, when Nunes showed up for Republican Claudia Tenney on July 15th. Give us kind of a quick overview of how you hit on this idea and then some of the work that Central Valley Indivisible did with Indivisible Binghamton. Yeah, so I actually can't take credit for the idea. Indivisible Binghamton reached out to us and said, hey, did you know what your guy is up to? They're they're New York 22, and so we kind of together came up with this idea of them being a sister city to Mm, us right? um, because we're California 22. And so they said, hey, he was only doing a $25 a plate fundraiser for her, which was kind of cheap of him. Um, (laughs) So so some of the ideas we came up with, it was, it got only better for the next protest. But for that one, it was, 
um, just to let him know that wherever he went, we were going to dog him. And for them, we came up with our hashtag, um, no Nunez is good Nunez. And then we blasted that everywhere. <laughs> and um, and they had one term Tenny. And so we blasted that everywhere. And my, my co-leader, Nancy Gilmore, who's a social media guru, is really responsible for uh, amplifying it tremendously. And then we asked our members to donate $25 so that they would actually fundraise as much as Nunes did for her. That's a great and idea. We didn't actually, we didn't meet our goal, but we made several hundred dollars. And, um, and so the idea was just to let them know, hey, hey, you can run, but you can't hide. Well, that's awesome. Uh, so let's talk about the preparation that both of you did for the fundraiser uh, protest in Spokane. Uh, Cynthia, talk a little bit about some of the ways that you and Natasha coordinated. Uh, I know that you exchanged a ton of ideas on how to make Nunes feel uh, unwelcome here in the state. <laughs> well, I want you to know, first of all, that Spokane is normally a very welcoming city. Yes, yeah, Spokane's we awesome. Traitors yeah. when, we recognize traitors when we see them. <laughs> and being a veteran, I know what traitors look like. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what had happened was uh, we had seen on Facebook somebody got a copy of uh, one of the invitations to come in. And, you know, somebody posted it and sent it to me and said, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> By two days later, we had already connected with Nancy and with Natasha, and we shared ideas, you know, about, uh, which is always a great thing to do. Uh, you know, we'd had Where's Kathy for, you know, a year and a half on Facebook. But, I mean, we literally had a Where's Kathy that I usually do a live stream on wherever I'm tracking her. I guess that's the technical term for it. But, anyway, I, I know I'm a gremlin in that girl's imagination, but... <laughs> She's a gremlin in ours. Well, somebody needs to be. So you guys coordinated on a ton of stuff. I know that you coordinated, uh, as Natasha mentioned, on social media. And Natasha, you sent along some some campaign signs for Nunes' opponent, Andrew Jans, right? Yeah, that was actually low-key brilliant, if I do say so myself, because we have signs outside of Devin Nunez's unused office in Clovis. He has two offices, one in the South Valley and one in the North Valley in Fresno. And he hasn't been there in about eight years. It's an empty office. And so um, a fellow group that's called the every Tuesday vigil has now, I think 72 weeks in a row stood outside his office with signs and they have progressed from Nunez is a traitor, Nunez, you know, where is Nunez to hold a town hall, Nunez? And now they just stand out there with the biggest Andrew Jan signs they can find, and it really bugs him. And so I said, hey, you know what? Let's make sure that wherever he goes, there are Andrew Jan signs, not just sort of we hate Nunez, because we do, because he's a terrible congressman, but in addition, just like have Andrew Jan's in his face everywhere he goes. So uh, I was so excited that that's what he was greeted with when he went up there. And we plan to replicate that every place we can find out where he is when he doesn't hide out in, you know, a private country club or something. Anywhere we can, we're just going to send signs and have people stand outside. Well, Cynthia, let's talk about the event in Spokane because it sounds like it did get the message across and that he did see the signage. Uh, you actually saw Nunes as he was leaving the event. So tell us about that. Yes, that's correct. 
Um, well, I didn't personally see him, but one of our peeps did. Well, actually, several of our people did. So he's coming out of the building, getting ushered into the big black SUV and everything. But uh, we've got people out there saying, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> and, and, Good question. You know, calling him a traitor. And, you know, he had his children with him. Like an extra little layer of shield, mm. uh, you know, in in addition to the Secret Service. It, it was an amazing uh, confrontation. And the Secret Service agents were not happy about it. But he had to listen to it at least while he got in. And then we kept in dialogue with the Secret Service people. Well, so it sounds like he's uh, having to face music uh, now pretty much wherever he goes. And thanks thanks in, in part to Indivisible and thanks to, to both of your great work. And also, Cynthia, of course, as you said, you're uh, a bit of a gremlin to uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers. So that's great, too. Um, you know, I, I will say uh, that in addition to it being very inspirational that you coordinated on this, I think it really gets to the heart of what Indivisible is really all about. I mean, you, you know, you have figured out a way across state lines to really turn out in in numbers and that's that's very important yes i think that's right one of the most important thing that indivisibles do is protest and sometimes it can feel like it's just making us feel good but it's not really accomplishing anything but it actually has a very specific goal and achieves that goal in that it um it lets these guys know that we are there so they can't say oh it's just a few weirdos hanging out there like Devin used to love to say uh, that there were just some fringe people or that they were bussing in out of district left-wing extremists to you know stand on a street corner but there are a lot of us and I think in every district that, that you see these protests we're a visible just a sign of that blue wave He's actually now sending out these pretty sad, whiny little emails. And for some reason, I'm on his email list for donations. Um, <laughs> no, the enemy, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. But he, he always really started saying a lot of things like, oh, the, the blue wave is going to get us. Please donate to me. And that's very different from what he was saying six months ago, which was, you know, scoff, scoff those cute little extremists who I can ignore. He can't ignore us wherever he goes. And that's true for all of these candidates, I think. So enough said. Yeah, well, we are getting to them. So mission accomplished there. Well, uh, Natasha Mosiev and uh, Cynthia Hamilton, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. And especially thanks for the work that you coordinated on. It's just fantastic. Thank you, Stefan. Absolutely. Thanks. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can always go to indivisiblepodcast.org for more information. You can also subscribe to the show while you are there. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Kim Schreier, Shannon Hader, Jason Redreiser, Cynthia Hamilton, and Natasha Mosiev. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>